<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. And I also see you're wearing the blue scrubs today. So are you in the clinic? Like, what's where do scrubs fit in versus the suit and tie look for you? It's funny that you would ask because before the pandemic, I never wore scrubs. And so my 10-year-old son had never seen me wear them. And he asked one day, he's like, Dad, why are you going to work in pajamas? (laughs) Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show. Is it serious? A conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Jean-Luc Neptune, MD. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. And I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. Before we get started today, we wanted to invite you to check out The Cycle, another great show from Offscript Health. Host Melissa Boudreaux talks with people from around the world who share their stories about their experience with endometriosis. There's an amazing episode with a woman from South Africa who talks about the cultural shame around menstruation and how because of that, her period was such a traumatic experience for her. She goes on to talk about how her endometriosis journey was full of misinformation and she had a constant struggle because she was misdiagnosed and suffered for a long time. She has since become very vocal and helps to empower young women. Yeah, and the Cycle podcast shares these stories with the goal of helping others who are suffering with endometriosis. So check out some of these powerful conversations on the Cycle podcast brought to you by our very own Offscript Health Network. We'll be sure to put the link to the Cycle in our show notes. All right, Mark. So how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking. Although, you know, you infringed my uh, my HIPAA rights, apparently, by asking such an intrusive personal question. It's been very in vogue recently to uh, to claim that HIPAA is uh, an all sort of encompassing protection against any such inquiry. So I, I invoke it somewhat tongue in cheek. It is really remarkable. We'll talk about HIPAA a little bit in a bit, but people who can't even spell HIPAA will often (laughs) use it as a way to try to prevent you from doing something or another. So excited as always to talk to you and uh, and pod today. And uh, our question of the day is going to be, should I read my medical records? And sort of the the tea into this, we're going to talk a little bit about Twitter. Yeah. But Mark, I, I, you know, I know you are very active on Twitter, I think more active than I am. How long you been on the platform? So I have a really interesting Twitter origin story. So I was actually semi forced to join Twitter by an academic chairman. So it was my literally my first day as like a big boy oncologist. So, you know, I'd finished my training. I was joining faculty. I was summoned to the uh, office of this professor. And I thought I was either going to get like a quiz on, you know, do I know how to give chemo or, <laughs> or, or some other form of orientation. But literally before I left his office that day, this was 2012. Okay. He said, I want you before you leave, I want you to sign up for Twitter. And I'll, I'll be honest, that was not at all what I was expecting, but this was a really forward thinking doctor. And he said, listen, this platform 
is going to be very, very important for you professionally. He said it's going to do a couple things. It's going to allow you to curate your knowledge. What he meant by that is there's about 200,000 articles per year that come out about cancer, just about cancer. And he said, you're never going to be able to read all those. So I would encourage you to see you know, what articles are exciting your peers? Like, what are they talking and tweeting about? And then you can sort of mm, focus your reading. Interesting. Yeah. So really like, kind of a serious you know, way of using the platform. And then he said, also, it'll allow you to have a voice long before you've sort of vaulted your way all the way up the academic ranks. And so this whole notion of Twitter, like flattening hierarchies. And frankly, the, one of the reasons I love talking to you so much, JL, is there's so much that you can convey with tone of voice that is just completely absent when you read a text or you read a tweet, because really what you're doing is you're ascribing your own voice in your head to that person that you're reading. It's almost like, you know, I don't know, but when I read a book, I'm basically saying things in my head, right? And it's the same thing right, when you read right, a tweet. Of like, course. So easy for misunderstandings to occur. And on the whole, I've had a great professional and personal experience on Twitter, but things can go wrong. When did you start tweeting? Good question. So, you know, um, I uh, I was actually working at a company back in 2007 where a lot of people were on Twitter. So I was on Twitter very early. In fact, I had early adopter. I, yeah. I had a two letter handle. I had the at JL handle for wow. a while. Uh, but the problem is back in the early days of Twitter, there weren't enough people on like, you know, like not all of the media people that I follow are on. So I actually quit Twitter at least twice, wow. maybe three times and finally settled upon my at Jean-Luc Nepp tune Twitter handle in 2008. So if you look at my Twitter history, you'll see that I'm like April 2008. But again, I was on the platform in like, you know, early 2007. And I think what what we're talking about today is that in the almost 15 years of being on Twitter, the most interaction that I have ever gotten and the meanest things that have ever been said to me online, not just on Twitter, online, happened because of a tweet that I sent in September of last year. Oh, so, this is going to be um, good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and again, it, it, you, it, sometimes you get reactions from the craziest things, you know? Yes. So um, as you certainly know, there's a, a piece of legislation that we're going to talk about called the 21st Century Cures yeah. Act. Yeah. And essentially there was a publication of this rule that required clinicians to no longer wait for a discussion to release results to patients. And I made a what in retrospect is sort of a glib comment, which was releasing uh, lab and imaging results directly to the patient, just a bad idea on so many levels. So it wasn't even like a full sentence. It's just like a sentence fragment. And I could tell you when I tweeted that, a small corner of the internet went absolutely nuts on me. This wasn't like trolls and bots and strangers. This was people that I know on Ooh. Twitter who are calling me out. <laughs> so like some of the ones I shared with you, like somebody says, Jean-Luc, I'm surprised to hear you saying this. There's another lady who said, no, it's our data and we want it. Please stop being condescending and paternalistic. This topic has been covered ad nauseum. And I was like, what? Where did this response come from? Yeah, you touched a nerve. Right. Yeah. I, I think somebody actually said at some point that I was butt hurt. <laughs> well, I'm a GI oncologist. I, I would take that pretty seriously. Yeah. <laughs> 
So I was like, what is this? I said, I said, okay, clearly I've done something wrong. So what I did is I restated the tweet and I said, I should have been more precise. Releasing lab and imaging results directly to the patient without concurrent professional analysis and interpretation is just a bad idea on so many levels. And I said, you know, patients should own their data. I really believe that. We'll talk about that a little bit more. And I said, look, patients should understand what that means. And the lesson that I learned, you know, you know how there are all these, uh, you know, uh, rules of the internet. There's yeah. like rule 33, rule 66. This is like rule 99. Anytime you release a follow-up tweet, it just makes it worse. Yeah, it's true. It doubles down. It doubles down. Yes. <laughs> and what I found is that people like sort of went extra crazy on me. And since that day, like, you know, from time to time, people will release like a comment. They'll find the thread. Somebody will comment and I get drawn back in. It is the tweet that refuses to die. Yeah. The internet's forever, man. That's why I tell even like trainees and stuff who are interested in getting on Twitter. I'm like, okay, well, remember, this is a public facing platform. And what you put on here is never, ever going to go away. So, you know, I, I sort of wanted to set that up in the sense that the 21st Century Cures Act, to some extent, is about medical records. And, you know, as we were talking before, like some people don't even realize what their medical records involve. So maybe what we need to do is take a step back and we need to go back in time to 1996 is probably the best example that most people have ever gotten. So are you a Seinfeld fan? I am a huge Seinfeld fan. I already knew where you're going with this. You know, it's interesting. The first two seasons of Seinfeld, I just didn't get it. Yeah. I didn't think I didn't I, I didn't get it. I didn't think it was funny. Yeah. And then I think somehow I think Larry David broke through yeah. in in session three. And all of a sudden, since then, it's been like my favorite TV show ever. Yeah, they were warming up. It's almost like the American office, like, it, like when they were kind of going off the UK scripts, it didn't work. And when they found their own voice, it just all really clicked. It's so funny rewatching them now on Netflix. Um, they really are like a time capsule from the 90s. And if we're going where I think you're going, we're actually going to invoke a form of, uh, shall we say, medical documentation that really doesn't even exist anymore. So what you may remember, there's an episode, it's called The Package. It's actually season eight. So it's very late in the Seinfeld run, episode five. And Elaine uh, goes to see her doctor about a rash. And in the interaction that she has with the doctor, the doctor notes that she is difficult in the chart. And Elaine takes a very negative response to that. Difficult. And then the whole episode is about Elaine trying to steal her chart back, getting caught stealing the chart, uh, sending in Kramer as Dr. Van Nostrand. And it's so funny. Like to me, that was really of all the Seinfeld stuff. I always thought that was the most funny when Kramer came out as Dr. Van Nostrand because he was so preposterous and foolish and all the things that he said as a quote unquote doctor. Yes, yes. I'm uh, Dr. Van Nostrand from the clinic. Yeah, I think Kramer also nailed it actually as a standardized patient as well. I don't know if you remember that one where... Uh, I remember that oh, well, sure. Fantastic. That the Hamlet of diseases was what he was hoping for. No, it's it's <laughs> it's a beautiful episode. If I could reassure, if I could go back in time and reassure Elaine, I would tell her that almost none of those comments are likely to be legible. But uh, it's... <laughs> It's hilarious. You're right. She just gets deeper and deeper. And every time they catch her doing this, the comment thread that you can only imagine now what they're writing is just getting worse and worse. And she's getting sort of deeper and deeper into trouble in, in the record. It's, a, it's really well done. I think it still holds up. And, you know, the reason I bring up that example is because, you know, we wanted to school everybody a little bit on sort of how your record works and sort of how things have happened. So, you know, in the old days, again, 1996, not that long ago, Mark, what was it like? You know, what does the episode really show? Yeah, I think it shows that the record is iterative. And, and 
you know, one visual for you to invoke Seinfeld, I'll invoke another visual from that era, which is when you would go to your doctor's office and you walked in and behind the front desk, behind reception, there was usually like a massive, massive set of cabinets with all of these color-coded tabbed charts. It was a paper record and some of those charts got very, very thick as the history built upon itself. But, you know, Jill, I actually have a slightly poignant take on this, which is that I followed my father's oncologist around in the 90s, just observing how he did things. And he literally wrote in the margins, marginalia, um, about his patients. It was all these little beautiful grace notes about them, like, you know, the names of their grandchildren, you know, what sports teams they supported. And it, Oh, interesting. Yeah, wow. It was like, it was the stuff that didn't quite fit in the note, like it didn't belong there. But it was still part of their identities, and it really, really helped to sort of flesh out these encounters as more than just, you know, I'm dispensing chemo and you're generating data. It was it really made the person feel like a human being. And I just thought that was so powerful and beautiful. And we've kind of lost that a little bit because the electronic medical record now, which we'll talk about, the EMR, sometimes we use the term EHR, electronic health record, is, I think, more sterile. And just like we were saying before, because it's just pure text devoid of context, uh, it can be misinterpreted. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as the uh, Seinfeld example showed, there was a time where it was literally a paper chart. Your doctor could write totally illegible stuff and it would be literally kept behind the desk. And that's where your medical record existed. And then sort of in the 90s to the early 2000s, you start to have mass digitization of the record. So all that stuff gets converted, all the paper stuff hopefully gets converted to electronics. And then all the doctors start inputting information electronically, but it was still kept in a box like a server on site. And then it's really been in the last 10 years that now you start to see the internet making information available really to anyone anywhere. And it's still not perfect. I think one myth we could puncture for our listeners is not every doctor has access to exactly the same medical record, but it is getting uh, like that, uh, especially if these proprietary systems, if they're talking to one another. Interestingly enough, I know there's lots of sort of assumptions that a government agency is this big lumbering bureaucracy, but the best example I ever encountered, or the first example, was the Veterans Affairs. The VA. The VA. The and, VA and, yeah. and the VA computers, it, I would be taking care of a patient in Houston, and I could see the care they got in Columbus, Ohio. It was actually amazing. I, I still remember the first time I could do it, and it was just leaps and bounds ahead of the paper charts which you either had to hold tangibly or you had to copy and fax. So it's it's amazing for you and I to have uh, practiced medicine while this information revolution is taking place. However, just like with the internet, just like with Twitter, there's good and bad things about it. One thing that does strike me, JL, is that human beings generate a lot of data. In my practice, just the, the scans I have to look at, the images, it actually makes sense that they would live in a computer, because again, I'm old, uh, old enough to remember, I used to have to go down to a, a room, typically in the basement of the hospital, and get the x-ray films printed out. Sure. And you can imagine just how inefficient that would be if it's a CT scan and it's about 200 uh, x-rays stacked together. So in some ways, the digitization is, is a beautiful thing. Again, 
uh, there's not just one universal electronic medical record, at least not in, in this country. There are many, many different EMRs. I think there's actually as many as 500. So this is not like a- 500. Yeah, it's not like an Apple iOS versus Android situation. There's a lot of different systems that we can use. And uh, to be honest with you, I think the frustration is they don't always talk to one another. And in fact, I, I will be a cynic here. I think some of the systems are incentivized not to talk to one another. So kind of the, the Coke and the Pepsi of these systems are Epic and Cerner. Uh, and it's not always easy to get these two systems to talk to one another, just like Apple and Samsung don't necessarily want to work together. And again, I always like to try to explain to patients who get frustrated by the system, you know, it's a common thing to see, to hear, like, why don't you have my data? I was just at another doctor's office. I had these tests done. Why don't you have it? I'm sure you felt that, like that, that, that stress. And you have to explain to patients, like, this is not a system that we designed. It is really a, a completely market-driven system that has developed in such a way that these systems don't talk to each other. And as you were saying, like they're in, actually there are incentives for them not to talk to each other. Like if you're, all your information is kept within one hospital or hospital system, they don't want you to go into the competitor. They want you to stay right there. So, you know, it's, it's to some extent, it's business. It's not really the doctors saying that. Uh, it's really the hospital saying, hey, maybe we should hold on to this data. Uh, but I think, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act, which we'll talk about in a second, is an attempt to address some of that and some of those issues. And, you know, we're it's a work in progress. We're trying to make it better. So why don't we take a break? Okay. Uh, and what we'll do is when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the 21st Century Cures Act and how patients and doctors can take advantage of this new world that's upon us. Sounds great. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, so let's talk about the 21st Century Cures Act. And, you know, the 21st Century Cures Act is like one of these laws or, you know, uh, regulations that gets written. And, you know, again, most people have no idea, but within a hospital, there are like a whole bunch of people whose whole life is dedicated to this. Yes. And what's crazy about this law is this is a law that's written in 2016. So really only fully being implemented four or five years later. And it was really a law that was originally designed to speed the approval of drugs and devices. But the way everything works in DC is there's a law that gets written and then all this other stuff gets tacked onto it. Yep, exactly. And one of the things that got tacked onto this is a rule. Uh, it's called the information blocking rule. And it's essentially a rule that requires physicians to make uh, information available to patients, labs, imaging, and a bunch of other stuff, and make it available as soon as soon as it's been published, or maybe even before your doctor has seen it. So I remember, Mark, we were talking about this. You had an experience with sort of rolling this out at your hospital. So tell us about that. Yeah, so you're right. I was really pretty naive about just how much this legislative snowball uh, was going to sort of roll towards me, almost like the the boulder in Indiana Jones, and and really change almost overnight the way that I practice. So, you know, I practice at Intermountain Healthcare. It's this big system based in Utah. We like to think we've been fairly forward thinking. And actually, for many years, we've had an internal 
sort of discussion about how quickly should results be returned to patients through these new electronic media. So we have a, a system which is not uncommon called MyChart. Basically, you can log onto your computer or even your smartphone. Yep. And you uh -huh. can see you know, a lot, a lot. Yeah, exactly. You can see a lot of your of your records. So there's a there's an inherent sort of tension between a patient ownership of data and respecting that autonomy, but also our sense that these things do need to be couched in the right terms. They need to be presented in the right way. Ideally, if I'm saying to someone, if I'm delivering bad news to them, I actually want to do that face-to-face. -face. I really, really don't want to do that over the phone, and I certainly don't want it happening without me there. So what happens in my practice is I tend to order tests, whether it's scans or labs, in the days before I'm seeing my patient in clinic. And that is necessary preparation. That's intelligence gathering. I'm getting data, and then I'm going to sit down with the patient, and we're going to synthesize everything. But our modern system has this immediate release. There's no valve. It just goes. Yep. And so what that means is a patient can log in, and they are likely now to see that result while I'm in clinic seeing other patients. And so it is not immediately visible to me. They're getting a notification, right? Yes. Like, bing, you have a new you have a new lab result. You get yeah, exactly. You kind of get that immediate uh, feedback. So uh, there have been, definitely been times where I have been in clinic. Let's, let's say I'm seeing patients today on a Friday, and I'm going to see someone on Monday. I might get pulled out of my current Friday clinic to console someone on the phone who has read the results that we are going to be discussing on Monday. And and the the good news, JL, is sometimes they have completely the wrong end of the stick. These records whether it's you know, test results, specifically say a radiology report that the radiologist text interpretation of images are not necessarily yep. written for direct patient consumption. There is a lot of jargon. A lot of those terms can be misconstrued as malignant when they are entirely benign. And so sometimes what I'm doing is quite happily talking someone off the ledge and saying, no, 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 this is fine. Like, I'm going to show you in person when you come to the office, I will, I will assure you this is fine. On the other hand, sometimes not so rosy. Sometimes I'm like, yes, I'm so sorry. You know, when I, when I see you, we're going to talk more about this. But yes, this is something that you need to prepare for. It's just changed the tempo of information release. And again, I do respect patient independence. I really, really do. On the other hand, I feel the weight of them interpreting this without our immediate help. I'm sure you feel similarly. Sure, sure. I, I very much agree with with what you have to say there. But it's fascinating to think about my tweet and the counterpoints that I got as I was talking to people. So I'm gonna give I'm gonna tee up a couple of you for you and love to get your your feedback. So sure. the first one that I got from a lot of people was like, you know, we don't need your doctors. Just give me your data and I'll figure it out. So what, what what's your take on that one? My take is again the language is not necessarily that clear. And even within medicine, there's all these different specialties, each with their own specialized vocabulary. So, you know, a lab value is fine, but even there, JL, I have to tell you, you get a whole range of numbers and it's difficult to know, again, without proper sort of interpretation, which numbers matter. So I'll give you a very silly example, but it's an important one. So in a complete blood count, which is one of the most common tests that gets ordered, yep. there are a ton of numbers, maybe three of which I routinely use, although there's probably about two dozen. And I've seen people get absolutely exercised over the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration, <laughs> the MCHC, which is literally you know this, this number that I, frankly, I don't know if I've ever used it in practice and I've been practicing for almost 20 years. But if that's slightly out of range, 
it'll get like highlighted right. in red. Sometimes there's an exclamation sure. mark. And now this poor patient is going down an internet rabbit hole trying to figure out, is that like a life and death value or is that trivial? So I would argue that there's just so much nuance still that's hard to decipher without your doctor. Right. And, and, and you have hematology training, right? So you not understanding that measure says so much. And again, I think the feeling that I got from a lot of people is like, they think that they can go online, sort of look up things, but yes, you can look up individual factoids for sure. But once you start like trying to figure out how it all fits together, like that's why we train for 10 years is not so much to know the factoids as much as how much they fit together. The synthesis. The synthesis, right. And again, like I can tell you like that exactly what you said. People will look at that lab result. They'll see, they'll look at just the things that are out of range and then they'll start doing the doom scrolling on on, on Google or doom searching. And with every search, and, and there's gotta be, another, again, another internet rule here. Every medical search that you do has to have either cancer, yeah, gotta be cancer. or something else really bad as, as part of it, right? Yes, so. that's right. Yeah, that's the, that's the end result of almost any internet search about one of these uh, abnormal results is it. It has to be a malignancy at the end, yeah. It has to be cancer. All right. So another one that I got was, hey, well, maybe we don't need doctors, but maybe computers can do this. Maybe we can just give people like a computer analysis that should, that explains the results. Like, is that realistic at where we are right now? It's just, you know, we, we hope that artificial intelligence will get to that point. But I have to tell you, there have already been some sort of failed experiments even in oncology, because, you know, think about what the oncologist has to do, right? This is not pity mark. This is like, there's a lot of data points to consider between how the patient in front of you looks, how their scans look, how their labs look. Again, it's how we put that all together. That's our reason for being in this profession. And quite famously, you know, very, very powerful AI has not yet been able to replicate that. Yeah. And I'm an investor in a company. I've been an investor in a company for about 10 years that was trying to do this. It's they're, they're good at sort of giving you your results. But again, in terms of like making sense of it beyond sort of a very superficial contextualization, it's just very hard, right? It's, there's a lot of things you have to put together. And then the, the third one that, that really drove me crazy was people saying, hey, I can take it. I can take it. Like, you know, I was, I was creating the hypothetical of, you know, you get an email and that email says, bring, you have cancer or you have some other bad thing. You have HIV. And I, there were a lot of people who were like, well, you know, I can take it. And and I always felt like, you know, if you've never really gotten that diagnosis or giving it, given it to somebody, I don't know if you necessarily know how challenging that can be, right? I mean, you're an oncologist. That's such a, that's such a difficult hypothetical. I would just say, like you, like you pointed out, until you've actually gone through it, it's very easy to conjecture. It's almost impossible to know exactly how any one person is going to react. And in fact, one of the reasons I like having someone in front of me when I'm giving them bad news is I know exactly where they are physically. And I can usually read their emotional state because, you know, this is a time of enormous fragility. I actually don't know if I've seen kind of on a public level so much distress in the last two years. And now you're going to basically lob a grenade of bad news into that. And you really don't know how someone's going to react. And, you know, frankly, the most alarming example I will give you, Jail, is I had somebody read their report online. This was a scan report. And due to a transcription error, the size of the, the spots, the cancer that we can measure on scan, it got read out as centimeters when actually it was supposed to be millimeters. Oh my God. This person thought their cancer had not just doubled in size, they thought it had gone 10 times mm. uh, in growth. And when I saw them in clinic, you know, I'm walking in, I've looked at the scans, scans are stable. This person is sitting there thinking they had a tenfold 
progression. And they told me this, this is going to haunt me. They said, Dr. Lewis, I nearly put a gun in my mouth after I read that report. Oh, la, la. And that wow. just like chilled me to the bone that a very elementary mistake could have had fatal implications for that patient. When in fact, not only was there not tenfold growth, things were completely the same. Um, and so that has given me, and I know that's a very like sort of extreme anecdotal example, but that's that's the kind of thing that gives me pause. It really takes experience as a physician to understand how people react to bad news. And you may not think you're going to have a reaction to bad news, but it is, you know, it's very unpredictable. And sometimes, as you said, people can have a very fatalistic, very desperate response to news that may not be that bad. Right. And news that actually, if you could contextualize it, actually, you'll, you'll be OK and we can fix this and we can help you. So, uh, again, I think that that was a, a thing that I was trying to communicate in Twitter. But that's that's always hard. Uh, and then I'll give you two more. Uh, one of them. You know, a lot of people said, well, I hate wait, waiting on my doctor. My doctor makes me wait a whole day. OK, I think that's reasonable. And to some extent, you know, maybe your doctor doesn't have to respond the second you get the result, but maybe trying to have some kind of rapid response or, you know, timely response. I think we can we can work on that. That's a systems problem. And then another one is doctors are not good at giving bad news. And, I, you know, I, I would say that's true. Like, I mean, did you ever get any training on like giving bad news in medical school, Mark? I did, although my immediate counterpoint is going to oh, be, you did. Okay. I'm going to say computers are terrible at giving bad news. That's going to be completely sterile. <laughs> That's true. Um, so actually, right. this was really cool. So I did my fellowship, my cancer training at the Mayo Clinic, and they have this simulation mm-hmm. lab. Oh. And I've never seen anything quite like it. So, you know, we, we, we invoked Kramer as the standardized patient earlier, right? So this is a, uh, a real thing. So often actors will sort of play out different disease states and different um, scenarios. And so what we did in our fellowship, and I thought this was so brilliant and so humane, is before we actually got to give much bad news in the clinic, we got to practice. Mm. Um, And again, it's never going to be exactly the same in rehearsal as it is in real life, but it taught me so much. So we were in this room. There's an actor or actress in front of me. I think we played out a variety of scenarios, one of which was I know I was having to tell someone they were nearing the end of life and we were having a hospice discussion. And what was so interesting, I know you and I get to listen to this podcast to the sound of our own voice, but they actually had cameras set up. So you, once you were done, you got to go next door and it was almost like watching like, uh, you know, through one of those uh, two-way mirrors, so it's like an interrogation room. You got to see yourself. Uh-huh. You got to see your body language. Wow. You got to see your visual cues. There's so much that's nonverbal about giving someone For bad sure. news that is really, really, it's actually impossible, I think, to give through these uh, digital record spaces. Got it. Fascinating. And, uh, you know, you're you're a little younger than I am. So it's great to hear that sort of more modern training, you know, is working in that way. And not only just, you know, giving you scenarios, but actually giving you visual feedback. I, you know, I'm a big believer. I did athletics in college that seeing a video of yourself, even like a, as a runner, could dramatically change your form, could dramatically change how you play. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, at forward looking places, doctors are being trained in that way. Because, again, giving that bad, bad news or even giving good news is something that you really have to be trained for. And, you know, we can get better at that. That's a skill. That's something that we can prove at and get better at. Exactly. That's the art of medicine. Okay. So, you know, I think it's interesting just to think about the the history of this because it doesn't start just with the 21st Century Cures Act. There's the HIPAA Act, right? Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. What I always say is the most misunderstood (laughs) piece of legislation that relates to, to healthcare ever. Actually, HIPAA back in 1996 gave people right to their health information. So that's something that people don't even know. You can 
call your doctor and ask them to give you your information and they have to do it within a timely uh, frame of time and for a reasonable cost. Uh, But 41% of Americans have never even seen their health information, which is sort of scary because, you know, it's useful to have your information. We'll talk about that in a second. And 27% of individuals in this one study that we looked at were unaware that they even had a right. So I think that, you know, HIPAA is this huge thing that dominates how we work in healthcare, but it's amazing how patients haven't really been fully educated into what HIPAA really means and, you know, what it means to them. Yeah, no, well said. It, it is thrown around with uh, remarkable disregard to what the law actually means. And, and I think you raise an ex- excellent point that we've definitely lowered what I would call the activation energy. We've made it easier to access your medical record than ever before, because as we've already discussed, it previously meant actually kind of getting your hands on paper. The digitization is what makes it easier to get. And the 21st Century Cures Act, I would argue, goes one step beyond HIPAA, not just saying that you have the right, but now you really have the ability. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in addition to the 21st Century Cures Act and and HIPAA, there's actually a broader movement uh, called the Open Notes Movement. So this is a research initiative that started in 2010 at B.I. Deaconess in Boston. So that's a Harvard Medical School teaching hospital. And they actually had a very interesting idea, which was make your healthcare uh, delivery more open, allow providers and patients to share information, sharing notes and doing all kinds of stuff that this law is requiring people to do. But in 2010, they were doing it voluntarily. And this Open Notes initiative is now, there are now 44 million patients who have access to their clinical care data via Open Notes at 210 health systems in North America. Is Intermountain a Open Notes site, Mark? Yes. And it's been very empowering for patients. Again, what's interesting about cancer in particular, I'm sorry to keep going back to what I do, but I think it's relevant, is that there's so much research happening in cancer that frankly, as the oncologist, I can't even know about every trial that's ongoing. So my favorite thing that happens, and I really, really mean this, is when the patient understands enough detail and nuance about their diagnosis that they can do meaningful research um, online. And I know you know it's, it's almost become a, a cliche during the pandemic to say, well, I did my own research. <laughs> There's a difference between a generalized sort of Googling and a a very specific focused investigation of your own data. So honestly, one of my favorite things that happens is a patient comes in and they'll say, Dr. Lewis, I went on a clinical trials database. I put in my information to the best of my understanding and I got this back and we talk about this study. That to me is the perfect sort of use case for this openness in both directions because there the patient is advocating for themselves. They're actually potentially advancing their own care and in a way, I'll be honest, that I don't have the time to do for every single person under you know, my practice. And I, I say that not trying to sound like any dereliction of duty. It's just physically impossible. Even if the note is open, you have to think about, well, what is in that note that they're going to read? And there's a lot of acronyms that can be misleading. <laughs> we get to that in one yeah. second. So in terms of benefits, you know, the, the great thing about, you know, using open notes at an academic medical center that's affiliated with Harvard is they do a lot of studying of the system. So what they found is that doctors actually like it. 74% of doctors hold a positive view about note sharing. So that's encouraging. And most doctors found that it wasn't as bad as they thought it might have been. Uh, a very interesting thing is that 25% of patients have found medical errors, yes. which I think is huge, right? Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, doctors are human. People make mistakes. So it's great to have the patient there as like a second set of eyes to try to catch 
differences or problems in the record. And I think that's that's a great idea, you know? And then the last thing is 78% of patients reported that reading doctor's notes actually helped them be more compliant, be more uh, partners in their treatment. And I think, again, that's another great benefit of having this even shared platform for patient information. That's awesome. I mean, I think you know, I'm going to use a benefit to highlight a downside. So, you know, when the patients identify an error in their record, by fixing it, then you are preventing it from being perpetuated. Because again, <laughs> you, you know, where I'm going with this. Sure. One of the, the critiques of the electronic medical record is it's almost too easy to copy and paste. Mm. And there's this, this word, it's semi-humorous, although it invokes tumorous, this word called chartoma, mm-hmm. which means almost a malignancy growing out of the chart in a sense that if one error is placed early on in that narrative and it's just copied and pasted again and again and again, it perpetuates almost to the point where it can't be then extracted. So I love it. I absolutely love it when patients are kind of proofreaders because who understands their history better than them? And it's really, it's great when they they help us address that. But one other downside, there is an acronym I have learned not to use (laughs) in the open notes era. Now, to be very, very clear, this is not intended to cause offense to anybody, but I once described uh, a patient in the chart, I described a symptom they told me as S-O-B, which stands- oh Yeah, I, yeah, you know, I, I, even saying it now, I'm ashamed, but it stands for shortness of breath. I've been taught to use that acronym in medical school. I'd used it for well over a decade. And then one time a patient came in and they were super aggravated that I had used this word to describe them. And I realized, oh yeah, you know, to the outside, this looks awful. Uh, and I explained, I said, I said, sir, I'm so sorry. And you told me you were getting winded going up the stairs. And, and you know, by the end of the visit, we had sort of you know, cooled things off. But simple things like that are, and I know that's, again, an extreme example, are so illustrative of how easily things can be misunderstood. Your tweet is an example of without the right tone, things can be misconstrued. Acronyms are absolutely prevalent in medicine. We use them all the time. You know, if the poor patient is sitting there like having to look up all these abbreviations, they might reach the wrong conclusion. Uh, yes. And, you know, in, in addition to acronyms, you know, what some research has shown that patients looking at their psychotherapy notes in a small minority felt that they were judged by yeah. their therapist. So maybe yeah. that's a, a communication thing that we'll have to think about over time as this new model of sharing information improves or uh, rolls out, excuse me. Um, and then, um, you know, there's a, a small minority of cancer patients. And so this was at Memorial uh, Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, yeah. um, who felt that they saw information that they wish they hadn't seen. So again, maybe that gets at issues of setting expectations, communicating to patients, giving them a heads up. And again, maybe that's something that we figure out as we go along. That almost harkens me back, Jail, to comment real quickly on what scans can see. So, you know, we can see inside the human body now in, in ways that it, it's it's kind of mind-blowing to think that, it, you know, the CT scan was invented only a half century ago. So in the whole history, the whole span of medicine, it is very, very recently that we've been able to see inside someone with this level of detail. Obviously, x-rays came before that. But it was not that long ago that if you wanted to see what was going on inside someone's abdomen, you had to cut them open. Yeah. Uh, you had to do an exploratory laparotomy, a surgery. And what I'm getting at here is as our level of perception has improved, we are finding lots of things that frankly are never going to bother the patient. Uh, we call them incidentalomas, right? So things that we found incidentally. And the reason I'm curious about this Sloan Kettering study in particular is obviously a world-class renowned cancer institution. I can only imagine with as many scans as they're running there, how many of these spots, if you'll forgive the expression, they find. And 
I think maybe the reason that the patients are getting distressed is they're reading about this and they might ask, you know, why did the oncologist never mention this? Well, the oncologist looks at it and thinks, oh, nothing of it. That's a garden variety thyroid nodule that's not going to be a, a problem. But if the patient reads it, this is the other thing I would say of these records, you cannot unring these bells. Once the patients have read something about themselves, it's almost impossible to unread and take back the impression that they got. And I think that's the, again, the, the pluses and the minuses of a completely open record. Absolutely. All right, Mark. So fascinating discussion as always. We could probably do 10 hours about patient access to information. Uh, and again, it's a very interesting field because it's what's happening now. And we're seeing a big change in the relationship between patients and providers. But as always on Is It Serious? We always want to focus on key takeaways, things that people should always think about um, as they approach their healthcare. So first, I think you got to be involved, right? And be involved, understand what's going on in your care. And it's okay to ask questions. I think that's a, a, a thing that I want to claim and state, obviously, because I think patients sometimes think that doctors don't want them to be involved. We want you to be involved because it makes you a better patient, allows us to be better doctors. Um, I think keeping good records, uh, especially if you have a lot of health care needs, um, especially around specific things that are going on with your care, I think that that's very useful. You know, my mom recently had a, a heart issue. She was at a hospital where she had received a lot of her care. She was had a test done at a private doctor's office that I had to call that doctor's office. They had to fax me something that I faxed another doctor. So there's still a lot of inefficiency and information here. So as a patient, it's still very good to have all of your data, try to keep it organized as much as possible. But the key thing is 20 binders of information is not useful. So we're always need, we always need to think about ways that we can summarize that information and try to keep things as simple as possible so that you can communicate effectively with your providers. That's right. Condense it down. And again, back to the question part, you know, your time with your doctor is precious so having a, a sort of, again, condensed, reasonable number of questions that you can have discreetly answered in that time, that's the goal. Got it. All right. And just going back to my tweet, you know, my point is always a simple one. People should have access and ownership of their data. Interpreting this stuff is hard for docs. Try to get help when you're at looking at your data. And this is America. So at the end of the day, we do have to give people the freedom to do whatever it is that they want. That's right. And, you know, we're, we're, learning, we're learning together. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a learning curve. And, you know, patients need to learn how to read their charts. That's something that's going to become increasingly important. Know how to ask their doctors for clarification. And when uh, doctors are writing their notes, they need to keep in mind that patients might be reading them. And again, this is an ongoing process as the healthcare system evolves for the future. All right. So, JL, I want to uh, make you feel like you um, have some understanding with your mean tweet, Misery Loves Company, right? So I stumbled into very hot water on Twitter this week in what I thought was a very innocuous way. So do you, do you play Wordle by any chance? I, I do, a maddening game, but I, I, enjoy, I enjoy Wordle, yes. Okay, so this week I learned just how passionate people are about Wordle, right? So it's always mm -hmm. going to be a five-letter word. I think I can say this now because the, the, the Wordle puzzle has passed. The, the word of the day was humor, Okay. But when I was trying to figure it out, and obviously to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, I put in tumor. That was my second to last oh. guess. So what I tweeted, and there was a kind of a spoiler alert built in here. All I, all I said, literally all I said was, as an oncologist, I very nearly hated today's Wordle. That was it. That was the whole tweet. Uh -huh. I got right. blown up. People were like, how dare you? <laughs> how dare you give me a hint as to the answer of Wordle? I was like, whoa. Like... I know we just talked about <laughs> open access to EMRs. People feel very passionate about that. 
They don't want any hints. It actually got taken one level uh, above me because the British embassy tweeted out that day's wordle with a letter U inserted into it because in Britain, we spell humor and tumor ah, right. with a U. Uh-huh. Yep. So this was like the yep. level mm-hmm. like international you know, controversy. But I felt kind of like a part of that because, boy, people don't want any, any spoilers when it comes to wordle. Wow. I'm surprised they didn't call your boss. They didn't call your parents, you know, to, to complain. I know. Yeah, it was, it was a close call. So I feel you on Twitter. It's, it's uh, often hard to know exactly how people are going to take things and we just do our best. All right. So that's our show for today. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as we establish it very clearly today. You can also find me on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm at Jean-Luc Neptune, J-E-A-N-L-U-C-N-E-P-T-U-N-E. And I'm now slightly nervous to share my handle, but it's at Mark Lewis, M-D, <laughs> M-A-R-K-L-E-W-I-S-M-D. If you have a medical question or like clarification about something medical, just ask us. You can also call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And just know that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, remember that this show doesn't provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. Thanks for listening. And please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez, and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. Auto Trader.